together that your son Jesus is Lord. He is our Lord. He is Lord when he teaches truths that comfort and cheer us, and he is Lord when he challenges us with hard and difficult truths, truths that would take us out of our comfort zones, that would knock us out of familiar ruts. Uh, For many of us, this teaching today may fall into that category. But God forbid that we say, Lord, Lord, and do not do the things he teaches us. God help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to review very briefly the setting of chapter 18. Chapter 18 is a discourse. The whole chapter is one discourse. And it is on the subject of life in the community of kingdom citizens. It looks forward to the church. It's the second Mention, second of two mentions of the word church in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've seen that this community of kingdom citizens, uh, we've seen how it's composed, how it's cared for, what it's called to do. It's composed of uh, men and women who have turned around. They've been converted. They have humbled themselves as little children. Or as we see it in the Gospel of John, they've been born again. Or as Jesus puts it elsewhere, they've denied themselves, picked up their cross and begun to follow him. It's composed of such. It is cared for by God, who cares for each one of them and forbids us from despising any of them, Uh, who Jesus likens to a shepherd who, though he owns a hundred sheep, if one goes straying, he leaves the 99 and goes until he gets that one back. And it is called to be God's feet and arms in looking after such a one. One of the ways that God restores and recalls sheep who stray is through those who are still walking with him. And he shows us how to do that in this passage of Scripture today. He begins showing us. So uh, how we deal with sin in the church has got to be seen in that light, in the light of all of that. Uh, We're not given a license to be obnoxious, super pious busybodies and pests, but we are given a responsibility to show love and constant vigilant care for our fellow sheep. Remember, first we're to watch over ourselves, as we saw. That's really the first step of five. But then the second, when we see sin in one of our brothers, that's what we're looking at today in verses 15 and following. So with all that in mind, let's look together more closely at what Jesus says to do, uh, Roman numeral one, in one-on-one confrontation. I've translated verse 15 for you. And if your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So uh, behind that, I want to lay the premise for this confrontation, for this ministry. And uh, our race had a bad start uh, back at the very beginning. Uh, What chapter of the Bible tells us of our fall into sin? Genesis chapter... 3. Genesis chapter 3. And then where's the first murder by a brother of a brother? Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> it happens right away. In fact, we see in Genesis chapter 3 the immediate beginning of collapse in relationships. I mean, that, that's immediate. As soon as the uh, fruit is eaten and God comes to confront the pair, Uh, What's Adam's first act? It's to throw his wife under the bus. She who was taken from his side for him to nurture and protect, he blames her for what happened. And also they've hidden from God, or tried to hide from God, uh, a uh, hopeless endeavor. But their relationship with God is broken, their relationship with each other is broken, and then in chapter 4, right at the start of it, we see the murder of Abel by Cain. And when God comes and confronts Cain and asks him where his murdered brother is, what does Cain say in Genesis 4, 9? Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that word keeper is a word that's used of shepherdly care. It's a word used of, of, of guarding. And it's too familiar uh, to see this attitude in him. Because uh, I want to ask you, why did he say that? Why why did he respond in this way? Uh, Why should I know am I my brother's keeper? Well, he'd murdered his brother. His brother was nothing to him. His brother was an obstacle and an irritation to him. And he doesn't want to be bothered with him. 
He doesn't want to be seen as his keeper. Now that's how sin shows itself in relation. Not wanting to be bothered, sin is an obstacle, and if it grows to full fruition, if need be, well, you just kill what's in your way. And that's what Cain did. But a right turn is given in the law of Moses. I'll read you Leviticus 19, 16 through 18. And perhaps it will surprise some of you to hear that a verse you think of as a New Testament verse actually is an Old Testament verse. Leviticus 19:16 and following, he says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. As if this murder is in his mind, God says, that's not to be your attitude towards each other. And then, in fact, he says in the next verse, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's where it starts. You shall not hate him in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor and so not bear sin because of him. If it's a matter of, of uh, something that he does that is annoying to you, you deal with it. You don't hate him for it. But if he's actually in sin, well, you go and reprove him for that sin. But still, you don't hate him for it. And verse 18, you shall not take vengeance and you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So they're commanded they must not allow Cain to, st to take root in their hearts and set up a little room for himself and begin taking control of them. They must not allow hatred. In fact, quite the opposite, they're called to love. Not just not to hate, but positively to love uh, their brother, to love their neighbor as themselves. It, it's assumed that, by the way, this is not a command to love yourself. It's the assumption that we love ourselves, and we all do love ourselves. The trouble with fallen men and women is we love ourselves far too well. But he means you care for yourself, you protect yourself, you don't harm yourself, so show that kind of love towards your neighbor. So that's the right turn under the law of Moses, but Jesus puts it in a kingdom setting. Number three, the kingdom setting. And I remind you that we've just recently seen in the Gospel of Matthew that we are Jesus' family. We are Jesus' family. And I take you back to Matthew 12, 48 through 50. You can turn there if you like. I, this one I won't ask, but I will ask later. Matthew 12, 48 and 50. Now I remind you that this is the end of a series of cycles of rejection. We've seen Jesus rejected with increasing intensity in various places, uh, climaxing in the religious leaders saying that he did what he did by the power of Beelzebub. In, in other words, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And then after that, we have this incident. He's teaching his disciples. And as he teaches his disciples for context, verse 47 says, Someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. This, it doesn't go very well with the veneration of Mary. They're not part of the disciples group. They're standing outside. They're not sitting and hearing his teaching. They're standing outside of the, of, of the disciples. And what does Jesus say in response to that? Oh, you all wait right here. I've got to go see my family. No, what he says is, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. Made a vivid impression on Matthew's mind, stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, look, my mother and my brothers, for anyone who does the will of my father who is in the heavens, he it is who is my brother and sister and mother. He calls disciples and the writer to the Hebrews is, is really dazzled with that. And he makes reference to that in chapter two, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. What makes people brothers they have a common father. And so Jesus, though his relationship is unique and eternal, and ours is adopted and granted by grace, still we have the same father. And so that makes us family. So we are Jesus' family, this collection of kingdom citizens. And secondly, letter B, we are our brother's guardians. So the answer in our assembly to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is... Yes, yes indeed, and gladly so. Matthew eighteen ten through 15, he just said, See that you do not disdain one of these small ones, for I say to you that their angels in the heavens continually see the face of my Father who is in the heavens. So they're watched over by saints who have access to the very throne room, uh, angels, pardon me, who have access to the very throne room of God. 
And so then he tells this parable I've alluded to of the, the shepherd with a hundred sheep, one strays, he goes after that one. He has a hundred sheep, and he's going to end up with a hundred sheep. But now I, I repoint out to you, verse 14, he says, Thus it is not the will of your Father who's in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. Now notice both your Father, it's not the will of your Father who's in the heavens that one of these small ones perish or be lost. Those are both good translations. And then the next verse, which starts our study today, is, and if your brother sins. How are we brothers? We have the same Father in the heavens, he'd said in verse 14. So this is my brother disciple. And if your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've what? You've gained your brother or you've won your brother. He was lost, but you've won him. So you see, in the family of God, this is one way that God finds those straying sheep. He sends us out after them. And if we reprove them of their sin, and they listen and repent, then we have gained the lost one. We've entered into the work of God, you see. So that's the connection here. That's what's behind this, uh, these instructions that Jesus gives. And you've got to keep that in mind or we'll see this all wrong and we'll take it the wrong way and we'll either do it the wrong way or not do it for the wrong reasons. So let's, uh, let's continue. Letter B. What is the problem that presents itself that Jesus is teaching us about? And if your brother sins. So... Let's take this apart. First of all, it involves a particular person, your brother. Number one, a particular person, a person. Who's the person? The person is your brother. And what is my brother? Jesus just defined. What is my brother? It's somebody who hears the word of God. It's somebody who does the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. That's who my brother is, somebody who's professed faith in Christ and begun walking with Christ. That's my brother. So, this is not about pagans. You don't, don't go to your pagan neighbor and, and say you're doing Matthew 18. No, you're not. If he's not a brother, then this doesn't apply in that situation. What he needs is the gospel. He needs to hear how he can become your brother. But this is for family. This is family instruction. It's for your brother. And this relationship does oblige us much as Cain did not like that truth. It does oblige us. Brothers have obligation. A wonderful proverb, Proverbs 17, 17. I wonder if any of you knows it. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I quoted that to a, a, a girl once, and she said, boy, is that true. She totally misunderstood it. She thought, she, she thought it meant her brother was born to cause her adversity. Uh, evidently, that was her family life. But um, that's not what it means. It means that a brother is born for times of adversity. In other words, that when things are hard and tight, that's exactly when a brother shows up. That's exactly when a brother's not absent. And if I'm in sin or you're in sin, that's adversity. That's a time when we really need a brother. We don't need someone to, to hang off at a distance in concern or go into his prayer closet and and insult God by not doing what God says to do, but instead telling God to do it, telling God to do what he told us to do. So this involves our brother. Secondly, what's the provocation? What is it that make, brings this situation up? Number two, the provocation, well, is if your brother sins. Now, we need to understand what he means by this by reading it in the context, in the context of what he's been saying. First of all, just notice the word, and that's very important. This is sin. This is sin. This is not a disagreement. This is not a difference of opinion. This is not something where my judgment is different. I don't approve of the way somebody dresses. I don't approve of the kind of music he listens to. I don't like the kind of food he eats or whatever. No, this is a case of actual sin. And what is sin? Let me give you a little brief definition of sin. I'll, I'll say it a couple few times. I've made it about as tight as I can as few words as I can. What is sin? Sin is passively ignoring or actively breaking a command of God. It is passively ignoring or actively breaking a command of God. One more time. It is passively ignoring or actively breaking a command of God. Now let me ask you a sort of a trick question, except it's not because I've told you it is. What parts of Scripture are commands of God? Well, all of Scripture. Because all of Scripture comes with the authority of God. 
So it may be a command to do something. It may be a command to not do something. It may be a command to think something. To think something about, for instance, how many gods there are. To think something about whether Jesus is God or not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is that a command? Yes, it is. It's a command to think a certain way about Jesus Christ. That he was in the beginning and that he was God. Yet he was distinct from the Father. Distinct in his person, one in his essence. So, one last time in case you didn't get it. Sin is passively ignoring or actively breaking a command of God. What do you have to do to sin? Absolutely nothing if God has commanded you to do something. Just ignore it. And that's sin. And sin can be demonstrated by Scripture. It's not what you and I feel is a command of God. (laughs) That's not in the definition, I note. It is not passively ignoring or actively breaking what you feel to be a command of God. It's something that I can demonstrate from Scripture. Now, what sorts of things? Well, the context gives us the idea of uh, what sorts of things. Uh, 15 through 20 is not just floating out by itself like a balloon at a parade. It comes after the verses before, which talk about what? Well, verse 6 talks about tripping up others, being a trip stick to others. Verse 6, but whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me, it is to his advantage that a donkey millstone be hung around his neck and he he be sunk in the depth of the sea. So somebody who's causing offense to other believers and causing them to trip and stumble in their lives in some way. That's an example of this sort of sin. Do you see? So where should we look for others? Same place. Verse uh, 8, personally tripping. But if your hand or your foot trips you up, cut it off and cast from you. So I see somebody doing something that is causing believers to stumble in their faith. Or I see somebody himself stumbling in his faith. Something in his life that is uh, destroying or harming his Christian life. These are the sorts of things that Jesus has in mind. I mean, he says, verse 9, how serious is it? Well, if your eye trips you up, pluck it out and throw it away. So yeah, it's fairly serious. Uh, What's another example from the context? Well, verse 12, straying, straying, wandering away from my profession of faith. As Hebrews says, growing cold and, and being hardened. Uh, by the deceitfulness of sin. These sorts of things are examples of what Jesus talks about from the context. So let me come at this a different way to try to be as helpful as I can. Another way to think of this is if you were to use the Ten Commandments as a guide line, uh, I think guide post, guideline, anyway, a guide. Uh, if you were to use the Ten Commandments, that's a pretty good uh, rule of thumb. For instance, uh, what does it start off with? Have no false gods. Don't, don't make any images. Don't bow, bow, bow down to other gods. Well, so if we see somebody getting off doctrinally in some fundamental way, if we are in their house and we see a book by a heretic, we just ask, you know, don't assume anything, but ask. And if you find out that that thinking is getting into your brother or sister's mind, well, now there, that's exactly the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about. Did you know this person is a a false teacher? Do you know what this person says about the gospel? Do you know what this person says about Jesus? What does scripture say? And so forth and get to the heart of that. False doctrine on the central, central doctrines of, Christ, of, the, of the Bible. Doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, the gospel, uh, the doctrine of the Bible as the word of God and so forth. You see that? Well, that's something that would fall into this category. Uh, You see something practical in the person's life. So think in terms of the Ten Commandments again. If you see sexual immorality, well, that would certainly be something that would fall into this. If you see theft of some sort, that would fall into this. If you see rebellion towards authorities, Remember, these are emblematic, these commands. So the command to, your, to obey your father and mother applies to other areas of authority as well. Pastor, and, uh, elders of the church, elder or elders of the church, and so forth. These are all divinely constituted authorities God calls us to submit to. But if this person is building a rebellious spirit, well, that's in this category too. Or if you see a, a social area, such as you see gossip, you see backstabbing, you see varieties of bearing false witness, witness against your neighbor. Uh, You see um, detaching himself, herself from the community. Just doesn't see church as important anymore. Uh, Has found a a 
bucket load of excuses, able to do everything else, but somehow just not able to get to church. Uh, well, this is a serious thing. This is a serious command of God. And these are the sorts of things that warrant uh, what Jesus is talking about. It's sin. So when we see that, when we encounter that, then what is the practice? Let us see. What does Jesus call us to do? Well, very plainly, he calls us to go reprove him. Go reprove him. Go reprove him. So if the person who sees this sin says, Lord, if it's your will for me to reprove this person, please cause him to call me and bring it up. Would that be a a prayer that honors God? You're not sure? I'll give you time. No, it would not. It would be a direct disobedience to God. Asking God for a sign of whether I should do what he's commanded me to do is tempting the Lord. It's not honoring the Lord. No, he says, you go. You know, you go. You go and you reprove him. Now, what does it mean to reprove him? It doesn't mean to call names. It doesn't mean to to shame or, or to yell at or scream at. None of those things. Very simply, what reprove means is show him where he's in sin. Expose his sin before his eyes. You're not trying to, you're not going to flatter him, certainly, but you're also not going to try to overpower him. Uh, you can't force somebody to repent. It has to come from his heart, her heart. But you do it by showing what the Word of God says about this and shining the light of the Word of God on this. So when, when have I done what God calls me to do? Well, when I have created a responsibility to repent. Now, that, that's an important distinction. It's an important thing to understand. So let's say, uh, just, just pick something that I hopefully we would all agree would be, uh, would be fairly simple and cut, cut and dried. And we see a married person, make it a man just to make it easy. See a man who's, who's committing adultery against his, his wife. So I go to that man and I show him what Scripture says. And I show him plainly what Scripture says and talk to him about the relationship he has Uh, which uh, we both know he's having. When I've done that, then I have created in him a responsibility to repent. But you haven't made him feel like he needs to. Not my responsibility. Not my ability. I have no way to do that. That's a God thing. My role is to create the responsibility. I see an unmarried person involved in a sexual relationship. I go to 1 Corinthians 6, flee fornication. I go to Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is honorable, uh, but uh, God will judge the immoral and the adulterers. I go there, I show that, I lay that out. I say, you need to repent. You need to repent of this sin, mortify this sin. And then I've done my responsibility. I lay out what the word of God says. I've created the need in that person, the, the obligation, I should say. Uh, to repent. Now, if he feels the need or not, that's not my part. But my part is to make it plain. Uh, Go to Ephesians 5 with me. And I do mean turn there, please. Turn to Ephesians 5. It's all very germane to what we're looking at here. Ephesians 5. So Paul says, and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't partner with them. How do I do that? I could certainly do that by engaging in them, but don't I do that if I know and don't say anything? Aren't I sort of complicit if I see sin, but I don't say anything about the sorts of sins we're talking about? So he says, do not participate in the unfruitful work of darkness. Oh, indeed, he was thinking that way because the next thing he says is, but instead even expose them. Now, here's the interesting thing. The word translated expose is the same Greek verb that Jesus uses in Matthew 18, 15. Same Greek verb. So there it says reprove. Here the LSB says expose. In other words, reprove. But expose is a good sense here because read on. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed. There's the same verb. When they are reproved, when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And could one of us say, well, I don't have the ability to shed light on sin. That's not true. We do that every time we bring the word of God to bear. Remember, there's a difference between objective and subjective. My responsibility is not subjective. I can't make the person think or feel something. 
but I can show him something, and that's what I'm called to do. Show him what Scripture says. And there's a great deal. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about everything you can say about this. But I show what Scripture says, perhaps remind about the the glory and the worth and the purity and the majesty of God, and that He's our Savior and we must obey Him, and so forth. But as to the sin, I show the sin from Scripture. I'm not bringing my judgment to bear. My opinions don't matter. And so we've talked about some of the dodges people use. Well, I'm not this, and I don't this, and I. Well, do you have a Bible? Have you read your Bible? Do you believe your Bible? Can you say what the Bible says about that? That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, it doesn't say if you're a great, fantastic person and the best Christian who ever lived or any other such thing. It's your brother. It's your brother. So you come and you bring the Word of God, bring it to bear on his sin. That's my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to change his mind. I will pray that he change his mind. I will urge him to change his mind. But I can't make him change. But when I leave, I want him to be thinking about God's Word. I don't want him to be thinking about me. I don't want him to be thinking about what a jerk I was or any other such thing that I might give as a, as a distraction. He may think that anyway, but I mean, don't give him reason to think is what I'm saying. <laughs> don't give him a good reason to think those things. Leave him particularly thinking about what the Word of God says. That's our goal. So why, number two, why? Why do we do this? Well, not because he bugs us and not God help us because we enjoy doing it. If we do, that's a problem. Repent of that. Not because we enjoy showing people their sin. Not because we're personally offended and bothered. Why do we do it? One reason fundamentally we do it because Jesus says to do it. That's sufficient reason. Amen? Jesus says to do it. And therefore, it is the loving thing to do. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus Jesus does not say, this would be a good, good idea. You should consider doing this. Maybe you should do this. Some people have done this. He doesn't say any of those things. He just says, do this. It's a command from the Lord Jesus. It cuts through every excuse and dodge. And I won't say I've heard them all because every time I think that, I hear a new one. So I will just say I've heard many. And a command of Jesus will slice through any excuse that's an excuse. And the reason why Jesus calls me to do it is to show God's love. Because remember the context. This is how God chases after straying sheep. He tells us to go after them. When we see them to go and talk to these people. Here's a little one who strayed. And God who loves the little ones sends us after the little ones. So that's why. Now let's talk about how Jesus gives a setting. The setting is between you and him alone. Very emphatic in Greek. Between you and him alone. So Jesus sees a need for privacy at this stage. Remember maybe in Proverbs 6, where there's a place where Solomon says there's six things that Yahweh hates. No, wait, seven that are an abomination to him. And he lists them off. And what's the climax? What's number seven? Number seven is one who spreads strife among brothers. So Jesus doesn't say, go around saying, do you know what brother X or sister Z is doing? That's not what he wants... That's the opposite of what he wants us to do. Proverbs 11.13 says, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, but he who is faithful in spirit conceals the matter. And even this, I want to conceal it between the two of us. I want us to talk about this. I want that person to be reconciled to God in repentance. And that's the end of it. Don't need to tell anybody anything. Proverbs 22.1 a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. A good name. And what do we do when we slander or spread, spread gossip or even true uh, accusations about somebody? We ruin their name. Doesn't gain us anything. Costs him a lot. I remember an official back in the Reagan days who was falsely accused of something, dragged through the mud, eventually exonerated, and he said at the end of it, Where do I go to get my good name back? Now, that's the question here, and we avoid being that person by not spreading and going to the person directly and talking with her or him about it. And I see this as just an application of Matthew 7.12, isn't it? What does Matthew 7.12 say? That's the golden rule, as we call it. What does that say? It says, therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, 
so do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do I want somebody telling everybody about, this, uh, about the sin I've gotten involved in before talking to me? I certainly do not. So don't do this to the person who God's brought across your path. However, I, I would add a little something about this. Don't promise unconditional secrecy. If somebody says, well, don't tell anybody about this, promise me. Don't promise that. You can say, I promise that if I'm able, I will. Or if God permits me, I will. Because there are circumstances in which there's something that is, you're going to need to bring in the authorities. Or something else. Don't, we don't hogtie ourselves at the outset by making a promise before we know everything. But we can certainly in good conscience promise, if, if I don't need to, I won't. So, um, what is the spirit? We've talked about the setting. Now, letter B, let's talk about the spirit in which we do this. Turn to Ephesians 6. Please turn in your Bible, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. And this is one of those places I'm more and more convinced that we see signs that Paul had these gospels available to, them, to him. Uh, he, he was very familiar with the teaching of Jesus. This is very like what we're studying here. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression... Oh, just pause right there. He addresses himself to brothers, just like Jesus does. This is a brother we're talking about. So he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, well, that's just the sort of framing in Matthew 18. Deliberately or not, this person finds himself in a, in a transgression. And don't think of transgression as a, a weak word. God's judgment in Romans 5 was brought on to us because of transgression. It's a serious word. It's a violation of God's law. So if, if a brother has become caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Now, what does he mean by you who are spiritual? Just read it in context, in, in context of chapter 5. Chapter 5 has talked about what it means to live in the Spirit. And it simply means to stay in line with the Spirit. It means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just the Christian life. It's not a special subset of super spiritual Christians. But it's a Christian who, in whom uh, Galatians 5.17, the flesh and the Spirit are battling. It's a Christian in whom Galatians 5.22 and following the fruit of the Spirit is being developed. It's a Christian who is being led by the Holy Spirit, which is, as I say, normal Christian living. That's just the normal Christian life. In other words, you yourself are not caught in a sin, but you yourself are walking with the Lord. So, I, mean, you, you, I think this is a Boy Scout instruction I was told years ago. You see somebody drowning you don't really, in, in some sort of choppy water, don't jump in the choppy water and drown with him. Throw something to him. Find some way to stay anchored and save that person. Get an anchor. And so we have an anchor if we walk with the Holy Spirit to be of help to somebody like that. You who are spiritual, he says, restore such a one. Beautiful verb used of repairing nets. The idea of putting something back in order, back in useful order. And so this is, this is the case of our brother. He's gotten out of order in sin. He's gone off the path. He's strayed. He's harming himself because of it. He's harming his testimony. In time, he would harm the church if nothing was done. And so my goal is to restore him, to bring the word of God to him and to seek to restore him, bring him back into useful order and, and useful conviction. But no, notice what he says next. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Lovely word. This is one of the fruit of the spirit, gentleness. Proutes. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not meekness in the sense of being apologetic and timid. It's the idea of not using any more force than you have to use. In classical Greek literature, there's a child who begs a doctor to be prouse with him. In other words, don't hurt me any more than you have to. <laughs> be gentle with me. And that's our, our goal. Not to. And this is a good thing to remind yourself. It's something in raising the children. Valerie and I often reminded each other. Don't start off on 10, you know. Start, start gentle. Start as gentle as you can. Maybe that's good enough. Sometimes a word is all it's taken. So, you know, I've heard of people who are, who are in it, and when somebody finally comes and talks to them about it, they are so grateful <laughs> because they've been carrying this guilt, and they do want to get rid of it, and they do want to repent of it, and that somebody would care and, and lance that boil 
is welcome. And so uh, do it in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is humble. Gentleness remembers, and this is a good Christian phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. And that's true of anything. I don't think that we're in a good place unless we first realize about ourselves that we're capable of any sin apart from the restraining grace of God. In the, in the, in the wrong circumstances and situation, we're capable of any sin apart from the grace of God. So we're not in a position to look down from our lofty, pious seat and judge those miserable sinners down there. How could they? No, we're fellow sinners saved by the grace of God, walking by grace alone, and every moment in the family of God has been paid for by someone else, and never by me. I'm there by grace. I'm a forgiven sinner. On my very best day, I'm a forgiven sinner. And so in that spirit, in that gentle spirit, approach somebody, not to judge and make miserable, but to show the truth and to help and to restore and to win. So, Bear one another's burdens is the next verse, and that's what this is. That's what I'm seeking to do. That sin's a burden. I'm hoping to relieve him of it. Uh, that It's not an intrusion. I'm not intruding. I'm there to help and win and recover and, and be of use to God. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What law of Christ? Well, certainly the law of Christ to love one another. That's his big law, his, his could we say, umbrella law over all of our Christian behavior. But what law of Christ? This law of Christ, the one we're studying right now. There's any reason not to think Paul had that in mind. This is what Jesus said to do, he's saying. Just exactly what you and I are studying today. So that's how we bear one another's burdens. We restore in a spirit of gentleness, watching ourselves lest we be tempted. Maybe not tempted to that sin, but tempted to another sin. Tempted by our pride to another sin. So, always a danger, always a need for self-watch. Remember, we're not safe till we see Jesus' face. Until we see Jesus' face, we're on the battlefield. Never forget. What's the schedule for this letter C? What is the schedule? How much time do we have to do this? Well, what this, this is a trick question. What does Jesus say the schedule is? He doesn't say. That's the correct answer. <laughs> he doesn't say. So, it can vary from situation to situation. There are situations where because of the nature of the sin and the nature of the situation, it does need to be handled right away. There is, there is a, a timer going, and, and it needs to be done, and needs to be broken off or dealt with in some way right away. But there are other situations where a more gentle uh, approach can be taken and time can be given. It's, it, it varies from situation to situation. Uh, the legality of the matter, others' safety, uh, consequences, all these enter in. Maybe instant action, maybe days or weeks, maybe repeated confrontations, as this is something that this person is having a great deal of difficulty seeing. And so we talk again and again about it and, and make a little more progress each time. But we've got to be making progress. So how do I know what to do? I ask for wisdom. James 1 verses 5 and 6. What does James 1 verses 5 and 6 say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by wind. The letter D, then, what is our reward? And you may say, well, that's kind of an odd question. But I remind you, I mean, I, first let me agree with you. I, I, th I think it's odd to see rewards in Scripture. Why should we be rewarded? <laughs> At best, we're doing what we should be doing. Why should there be a reward for that, you know? You ask your, your, your kid who lives on your dime day and night to maybe take out the trash or something, and she says, he says, why should I? You know, what will you give me for doing this? I will let you continue to live free, room and board. That, how about that? How about we do that? See, that's just because you're a member of the family. You don't get a special reward for that. And yet God in his grace, are kids going to use this against their parents? But yet God in his grace 
does reward us. Jesus speaks often about rewards. It's mind-boggling, the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. And so here, the reward he specifies is, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, how is that a reward? I just remind you, you have literally joined in doing the work of God. What's God like? It's like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one goes off, he goes and gets it. If you were the one who sees that one go off and you go and talk to him about his sin and he listens and repents, you've entered into the work of God. You have, as it were, worked side by side with your father in the field. You're doing the very work of God. And indeed, Proverbs 28, 23 says, He reproves a man will afterward find more favor, literally more grace, than he who flatters with the tongue. So there is a great joy in knowing that I have worked with God, that I have done something that is in the heart of God. So that's one-on-one confrontation, and now we're going to talk about small group confrontation. And the reason why we're going to talk about it more briefly, you see there's less room for it, is not because it's not important, but because it's the exact same thing we just studied, only with three people there, (laughs) or maybe four people there, you see. So verse... uh, Verse, uh, this is small group confrontation. You've already filled that in. The problem, I'll just read you the verses. But if he does not listen, take along with you another one of, another one or two, in order that on the mouth of two witnesses or three, every word may be stood. So verse 16, there it is. If he doesn't listen, take with you another two or three. Well, take with them and do what? Reprove him. How? Between you and them alone to gain your brother. You see? So it's the exact same thing, basically. And in both cases, listening is the key. Verse 15, if he listens, then mission accomplished. You've won your brother. But this is always our relationship with God, remember. It's to listen. He speaks, we listen. And so if this brother listens, he's won. Two or three of you go and talk to him. The goal is that he listen. If he doesn't listen, then you go back with another witness or two. Reaching out to him by word just as God reaches out to us by word. So this determines the term. If the the straying sheep listens, then he's won and mission accomplished because listening is obedience in embryo form. Obedience always starts with listening, but it needs to not stop with listening. But it does always start with listening. But if he doesn't listen, well, that's the problem. He has sinned and not listened to the one person's reproof. So what's the practice? Verse 16b, take along with you another two, one or two, sorry, in order that on the mouth of two witnesses or three, every word may be stood. So still, all of this is a command, not a suggestion, not an idea, not a just saying. Jesus never does a just saying. These are words of God to us. So the specifics will be the same. Uh, What you do is you go and reprove him. Now you do it with one or two witnesses with you. And why you do it is the same. God's love for this little straying one. How you do it is still the same. You do it as privately as you can. You say, well, this isn't private. This is one or two others. One or two other what's? Witnesses. These are people who already know about the sin. So you've not spread the circle of who knows the sin. Uh, These are all three who know what the sin is. So you're all still just talking. That's how every word may be stood. It's the only way it makes sense. So um, you do it in a spirit of love and gentleness, just as with individual confrontation. You take as much time as you need to take, as wisdom dictates, just as with private one-on-one confrontation. But the particular wisdom of bringing witnesses, I'd like to highlight for you. Why is it important to bring one or two witnesses? Well, for one thing, it underscores to the person who has sinned the seriousness of the matter. This is not just a personal opinion, not just a bugaboo of of mine or something that gripes me. The two of us, the three of us, we're seeing the same thing and we're concerned and we're calling you to repent. You see. So it underscores the seriousness of the matter and... It prepares for the next step if there has to be a next step of the three of you giving a report to the church so the church can call the person to repentance. But here's another reason why it's wise to have two or three uh, 
to have a total of two or three, adding one or two witnesses. That's a biblical law. That's a biblical law we see in a number of places in biblical legislation because it is designed to protect against false witness, false accusation, possibly vindictive, possibly jealous, possibly spiteful, as people have done to destroy someone who is, who is in power or represents something that they don't like. It represents a position or something that they'd like to tear that person down. And they know just the accusation to do it. So this one person stands up. And the Bible says, no, no, there's got to be two or three witnesses. So somebody might say to me, well, you believe the victim though, right? Aren't we supposed to believe the victim? To that I would say, yes, you do believe the victim. But that's not the same as believing every accuser. Because not every accuser is a victim. And the Bible never says to grant instant credibility to anybody who makes an accusation. Now, I think that people who, who are offended by this biblical truth are probably people who've never been falsely accused and never been in the situation of having to prove a negative. Well, here's five pictures of me not doing that. You know, I mean, how do you prove a negative? Uh, and, and so uh, uh, once you've been in that situation, you realize the wisdom of biblical law of requiring witnesses. And you've you got to know, if you've read biblical law, the Bible is death on false accusers. The Bible is absolute death. It's literal death on false accusers, in fact. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21 says that if somebody makes a false accusation, it's found to be false. That person is to suffer the judgment the accused would have fallen under. So if somebody falsely accuses somebody of a death penalty crime and is found to be a false witness, he's executed. Do you see? Now you think that would be an incentive against frivolous lawsuits and frivolous accusations to know that if it's proven that I've made a false accusation, I will suffer what he would have suffered? I think that's a very, very wise law. Uh, but do not bear fault, false witness is one of the big ten. And for a good reason. So... Um, so that's uh, the wisdom of taking along witnesses who themselves are knowledgeable about this sin. And what's the reward for that then? Well, Jesus gives it expressly in verses 19 and 20. For one, the reward is assurance in verse 19. Jesus says, Moreover, I say to you that if two of you upon earth agree concerning any matter, any issue, remember, this is a word used of a court issue, of a legal issue, courtroom matter. If any two of you upon earth agree concerning any matter which they may ask, it will be brought about for them from my Father who is in the heavens. And again, we, we studied this before in an overview. Why does he say two of you agreeing? Well, he's going back to the take along one or two witnesses. And so if you were, you were in harmony in asking God for guidance on this, God will guide you. God will work with you. God will enable you to do his will. That's assurance in, in God's very words. And secondly, reward of blessing. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name, there I am in their midst. Now, we'll look at this again, but, and we've looked at it before, but just to remind you, what does it mean to say, in respect to my own name? Can you just say, well, in Jesus' name, and that makes us all good? No, what he means is carrying out my will, which we can only, we can only act in his name if, he has, if he's doing something, if we are doing something he said to do. Like if, if when my kids were little and one came to the other kid and said, uh, you need to clean your room? And the kid says, yeah, says who? And, and the first says, well, dad says. Well, then okay. That, that changes the situation unless I didn't say it. And if I didn't say it, then the kid who says so is in trouble, you see? So when we want to do something in Jesus' name, we better make sure we understand what Jesus has said to do. Now, in this case, Jesus has said what to do. And so he says, when you're gathered in respect to my name, in other words, doing what I've said to do, I'm right there in the middle of you. You're, you're not alone. Uh, you're doing my heart. You're, you're carrying out my concern for my flock, for my sheep. So I'm there with you. Now, a church 
Well, what do we define sin as? Sin is passively or actively disobeying God's command. So what of those churches now who are welcoming sinners who are unrepentant and telling them that they're fine? How, how does the Lord see those churches? I think he sees them in terms of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 of the churches whose lampstands he threatens to get rid of if they don't repent because they're not acting in Jesus' name. They're using Jesus' name, but they are not acting in his name. When they say to someone who's walking in unrepentant sin, you're fine, you're good with God, go in grace. This is not a reflection of Jesus Christ. It's not loving, it's not God-honoring, and it's not authorized. In fact, it's the opposite of authorized. So this is a very important ministry of the church, starting on an individual level, then if need be, involving witnesses, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the next steps if the person does not listen to the one plus the witnesses. So we are assured that when we do this, and we may... For some people, some personality types, this is not a difficult thing to do. God bless you. For others of us, it's a terribly difficult thing to do. And we hate, we just about sooner, um, I don't know, poke ourselves in the eye with a stick than have to do this. We hate having to do this sort of thing. But whatever our personality type is, Jesus calls us to do it. And the reassurance is he assures us as we do it, he's with us because we're carrying out His will. We're acting in His name. So, sum up. You believe in the security of the believer. I believe in the security of the believer. That's what the Bible teaches. But this is how God secures the security of the believer. He does it through the ministry of the local church. By becoming a member of a local church where you've committed yourself to submit to the discipline of that church. And you have a family of people watching out for you. And a shepherd or shepherds watching over you. All committed to your care and your spiritual well-being. All committing themselves that if they see you straying and walking into sin, they will talk to you about it. They will do what they can to bring you back and restore you. This is how God deals in us. Christ is teaching us wisdom here. We should be the sort of people who will do this in love when necessary. And we should be the sort of people who welcome this ministry in gratitude when necessary. Whether we are in the going to and telling side or whether we are on the listening side. God help us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, the words of your Son. We thank you for how he teaches us, for how he shows us your truth, how he reflects your heart and shows us how to reflect your heart as well. We pray that we'll take these words to heart and that we will learn to walk in what Jesus says is the walk of love and obedience. We pray for this church that you'll help us all to be committed, that this be that kind of an assembly of kingdom citizens, people who love each other, people who watch over ourselves and who watch over each other and care for each other in love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.